Please open in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, continuing on in our exposition of the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 30 through 37. Mark, chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. The title of our sermon is The Greatest Disciple. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Let's seek the Lord in prayer. <coughs> Lord God Almighty, we come before thee once again, O God. We ask for thy help. As we read thy word, as we preach it and hear it preached, pray, God, thou wouldst help us all to be diligent in hearing the word. And Holy Spirit, we ask and plead thou wouldst apply it to our hearts, help us to understand it, to deeply feel it, the truths thereof and to live them out in our daily life. Help this preacher, weak, beggarly as I am, to preach thy word accurately, and for us all, all us here who believe in thee and call upon thy name, to receive it, to understand it, to go forth in love to thee on bended knee, Fulfilling thy will. Lord, without thee, we can do nothing. We ask, Lord, for thy transforming power. Rely on thy ministry, Holy Spirit, to us in thy preached word as a means of grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 to 37. Let's read our text. Sorry, in verse 30. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee. And he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house... He asked them, What was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? They held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it. The greatest disciple. Dear congregation, natural man has never loved the path of self-abasement and self-denial. He never shall. He never has. They never shall. Sinful man loves the way of self-exaltation, self-glorification. His froward heart is repelled 
by the very idea of a free salvation. He's repulsed by the idea of an alien righteousness, one that he contributes nothing to whatsoever, in which God alone gets all the glory. This is natural man's natural state as a sinful, rebellious human being. If you may not have salvation, with at the very least sets him on equal footing with God, one in which both he and God are to be thanked for the salvation, then he would rather perish. That is man by nature in his sinful state. Yet, I've never met an Arminian, I don't think any of us have, who is truly saved, that would attribute his salvation to anything but God alone. No Christian attributes their salvation to anything but God alone. Yet in their theology, and thus also in their naughty heart, as Charles Spurgeon said, they staunchly oppose the idea. Yes, God, praise the Arminian. I thank thee for paying for all my sins, that my sins are paid for, that my sins are done away. I have to thank thee alone. But for the application of this salvation, O Lord, I do not thank thee, for it was I, by my own free will, that chose to accept thy sacrifice. For the choice to be saved, I alone am to be congratulated, O God. Ah, yet how prominent such similar, wicked, self-exalting tendencies remain in all Christians, not just the inconsistent Arminian. We would pray, wouldn't we, for great revival, for outpourings of God's Holy Spirit, the salvation of multitudes and individuals around us, the increase of godliness and the diminishing of evil in our land. But how many would like to measure this by the number of moral people and institutions rather than the number of true Christians in churches? A genteel, polite And generally, moral populace brings man glory, doesn't it? It brings glory to man, such as we saw in the Victorian age, when after a little curtsy, moral people properly sat themselves in proper little seats of pomp and self-congratulation, while church pews throughout the land sat empty. Indeed, dear congregation, the way of Christ has always been opposed by the way of the world. The worldly, that is the unsaved man, has never been able to accept Christ's beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How many pastors, a full church, a productive ministry, a successful outreach will gladly accept, as long as it comes with a prominent name. If their name be claimed, they care very little whether or not their followers claim the name of Jesus Christ, whose name is above every name. But dear congregation, do we long to see Christ's name exalted, to see his name delighted in and praised? Would our heart be full upon seeing society moral while giving little thought to whether society was Christian or not? Whether society bows before Jesus or not? No doubt, congregation. A full church, a moral society, 
a conservative house, are not opposed to the gospel whatsoever. But what counts, dear congregation, and must be in the forefront, is whether or not a people claim the name of Christ. Not are they moral people, but are they Christian people? On the individual level and at the societal level, the path of Christ is this. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those who are exalted highest in the kingdom of heaven, dear congregation, are those who are bowed lowest before Christ here on earth. God's kingdom is not established by the sword of man, but by the sword of the Spirit. In Christianity, glory belongs to God alone, and to man, not at all. The greatness of Christian discipleship, dear congregation, consists in the minimization of man and the exaltation of God, specifically the person and work of Christ. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. In our text, let us make three considerations. First, the greatness of Christ. The greatness of Christ. Secondly, the greatness of discipleship. The greatness of discipleship. And third, the greatness of humility. The greatness of humility. The greatness of Christ, the greatness of discipleship, and the greatness of humility. First, the greatness of Christ. Let's look at verses 30 through 32. And they departed thence and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him the greatness of Christ. Jesus here, dear congregation in our text, continues to take his disciples back to Capernaum, where they're on their way to, which used to be the headquarters of his ministry for some time, as we remember. But in doing so, he wished to pass quietly through Galilee. Why? So that he might have time to spend with just his disciples. He wished to instruct them more closely, personally, and privately. You see, the disciples' understanding was still quite dull at this point, And they did not yet grasp what Christ had come to accomplish, no matter how clearly he has told them, no matter how many miracles they have seen testifying to this reality. They still did not quite grasp what Christ had come to accomplish. In teaching them, here in our text, he predicts his own death for the second time. We read, he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. You see, the disciples knew that Christ shall be glorified and shall have a kingdom. They knew that when the Christ came, this is what would happen. And he even told them that when he shall come, the glory of his Father with the holy angels shall come, shall come with him. And in chapter 8, verse 38. Yet they still do not comprehend that the glory of Christ and his kingdom must come, what? In meekness, through suffering, rejection, and death, that the very people Christ came for shall receive him not, as we read in the first chapter of John. And then he must suffer many things at their hands and be rejected and be killed at their hands. The disciples 
had a foretaste of his glory at this point. Remember? This, the Mount of Transfiguration. But still, they could not understand how this glorious vision could be attained by a disgraceful death. And this second time that Jesus predicts his death, he drives the point of the arrow deeper in, as it were. Not only shall the Christ be rejected, suffer at the hands of his own covenant people, and be killed, but he shall also be betrayed, delivered into the hands of men. We know this is by Judas Iscariot. Though they did not yet understand, Jesus desires for them to understand, doesn't he? That his glory comes not by any political or militaristic means as they thought at that time, some victory over the Romans, but through death, even the death of the cross, as we read in Philippians 2. Through Christ's sacrificial work for his sheep, he will receive a name which is above every name. That's where the victory comes. How backwards this seemed to his disciples and how backwards it often seems to the natural man. But this is what Christ desires that all his disciples understand, both them and us now. That through his atoning work, though despised and foolish in the eyes of men, his crucifixion, Christ's glory is still displayed and his kingdom is established in power through that ignominious death on the cross. Dear congregation, we may still wonder, and I think we often do, well, how, how could that be? How can this be? That that's how the kingdom is established. That that's the path of glory. Well, the greatness of Christ is seen in his accomplishing of his redemptive work. The salvation of sinful men. A thing that, remember, is impossible for any man to do. The salvation of sinful men. But it is certain and it is achieved by Christ on the cross. Christ came to give his life a ransom for many, we will get to in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. And thus, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is his greatness put on display before the whole world. That this glorious work, which demonstrates, demonstrates Christ's greatness, is confirmed by his resurrection from the dead. We know from our text. Because Jesus here says, not only that he shall be killed, but that he shall rise the third day. This is the work of Christ, dear congregation. A great work. A glorious work. The salvation of his people, whom he came to save, is confirmed and made certain by his victory over death in his resurrection. It made certain, fulfilled, by his victory over death and his resurrection. So not only shall Jesus, the eternal Son of God, die for sinners, but he shall rise from the dead for them. For those who perish without Christ, who reject his sacrificial work on the cross, his cross is seen as foolishness, both then and now. But unto us which are partakers of Christ's resurrection, unto us which are saved, Paul says, to us who are Christian, dear congregation, the cross is actually the power of God, 1 Corinthians 1.18. Though this is especially clear, this next point I'll make to readers of the Greek original, yet it's still clear to readers of our translation that Jesus speaks not only of his resurrection, but of his raising himself from the dead here in our text by his own power. 
Jesus says that he shall rise the third day. That is, he shall rise, raise himself from the dead by his own glorious power. Elsewhere, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, parallel passage, that he shall be raised up. So passive. He shall be raised up by another's power. But here in our text, he says that he shall rise of his own power. Here, beloved, we see the greatness of our dear Jesus. But the question presents ourselves, and people bicker over this. Who shall raise Jesus? Is this not a contradiction? One place it says he shall be raised. Here he says, I shall raise myself. Is that not a contradiction? Dear congregation, we know that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is a confirmation of his atoning work, God's yea and amen, his exclamation mark to Christ's sacrifice, is the work of each member, each person of the glorious triune God. No less was Christ raised by the power of the Father than of the Spirit or the Son. But here, Christ highlights his own greatness in the work, as he does elsewhere, specifically John 10, verses 17 and 18, where he says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Christ rose himself from the dead. The Father rose Christ from the dead. The Spirit rose Christ from the dead. Trinitarian work. But notice, dear congregation, who it is that Christ shall die and rise for. Namely, in our text, his sinful, weak, ignorant disciples. This is who he's speaking to. And no less us than them here in this passage. Though this is the second time Jesus has told them of his death and resurrection, though he has made it clear to them That his glory consists not in some worldly political conquest, but in spiritual victory in the salvation of souls. Yet, we read that the disciples still understood not the saying and were afraid to ask him. Jesus' ministry was coming to a close at this point. We're heading to Jerusalem. We're getting close to that time. He would soon be killed and soon rise from the dead for these very men who were still without understanding, who were still afraid to ask him. Christ's greatness, dear congregation, is demonstrated in working salvation for those who are spiritually dead, who are ignorant, without God, without hope. As we read in Romans 5.8, that God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let us notice especially, it says, they were afraid to ask him. This was not because Jesus was unapproachable, nor that he was so severe that you wouldn't want to ask him a question if you were his disciple, but because they were proud. It's because they were proud. They were either ashamed to admit after all this time that they still were ignorant, or they were afraid that they would be chastised like Peter just was in the last chapter, If they should admit that Christ's way to glory still seemed loathsome to their understanding. If they still said, thought to themselves, It shall not be so, O Lord, that you shall go and be crucified and die. They were afraid that if they voiced such opposition, they might be chastened and say, Get thee behind me, Satan, as Peter. Either way, it's out of pride. 
They would rather remain without the blessing of spiritual understanding, dear congregation, than just to humbly ask him. Just to humbly ask him. And how often, dear congregation, do Christians remain ignorant simply because they refuse to inquire of Jesus? When poring over some difficult passage in the scriptures, dear congregation, or studying some doctrinal position, getting out all your books, having a talk on, around the coffee table, do you ever turn to prayer and ask Jesus? And ask Jesus. Do you ever pray, Lord, I want to know thy truth, not my thoughts, not another man's thoughts, but the word of thy truth, the truth of thy word. Give me understanding for Christ's sake. How often do we pray that? We're studying some doctrinal issue, studying the scriptures. Every day when we open our Bibles, dear congregation, we should begin that. Begin that way. Whether we're studying out an intricacy of some difficult passage, studying a doctrinal statement, position, or just reading our Bibles devotionally every day as we're supposed to, feeding on the word, we should begin by, Lord, illuminate to me thy word. Help me to understand and to live it. Remember, dear Christian, Christ died, not that we would be ignorant, not that we would be ignorant, but to make known unto us the mystery of the gospel, to make known unto us the mystery of the gospel. Ephesians 6.19, Christ came to display his greatness in the salvation of sinners. Not that his greatness would be hidden. Let us never fear, dear believers, to ask Jesus. Rather, let us come humbly in meekness and ask that he would reveal his truth to us in his word. And he shall. He died for the ignorant, for the sinful, for the rebel. He died for those who were afraid to ask him. Christ's greatness is seen in his self-denial, his meekness, his self-sacrifice, and his victorious resurrection. In his ability to make wise the simple, to give understanding to the foolish and to the ignorant, to spiritually illuminate the spiritually dark and dead souls of sinful men. He's, his greatness is seen in opening a way for penitent sinners like you and I, dear congregation, to come to him and ask, Lord, show me thy glory. Second, the greatness of discipleship. Let's read verses 33 through 35. And he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that ye disputed among yourselves by the way? But they held their peace. For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. So once they arrived in Capernaum, they went into a house, likely the home of his disciple Andrew. But whose house it was really makes no difference. Jesus kindly takes the opportunity to instruct his ignorant disciples. He does this by asking them a question, one which would reveal their ignorance and their pride so that he could correct both. And he asks a question that we know from other passages, he already knows. He already knows this question, the answer to this question. 
The question he asks is, what is it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? The disciples of Christ, then and now, dear congregation, both in the time of Christ right here, as well as us sitting in this church building, are in constant need of correction, of further enlightenment, of sanctification. Now it is the work of Christ not only to save, but to perfect, to perfect that glorious day of Christ Jesus. He shall complete the work he began in us. Dear believers, as we continue through this passage, let us remember the greatness of Christian discipleship consists in the same meekness and self-denial that Jesus demonstrated. It doesn't consist in being exalted, but in being humbled. That Christ might be exalted in us. We are humbled so he might be lifted up. Keeping in mind Christ's call to discipleship, which we saw in chapter 8, will help us to understand the section that's now before us. Namely, what he says in 8.35, Whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. Similarly, Paul's understanding of discipleship, to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21. Now, a great dispute arose among the disciples while they walked along the way to Capernaum. A great dispute, an argument. And what was it? For by the way, they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Who should be the greatest? In light of Christ's prediction of his coming sacrificial death, his disciples had become entangled in an argument concerning rank. Rank among them. Which of the disciples would be the greatest in Christ's kingdom? That's the debate. That's the argument. That's the dispute. Would it be Peter, John, James, Judas? Maybe another one of them. Which of us, think ye, shall be the most powerful in his kingdom? They still did not understand in what Christ's kingdom consisted. What it consisted of. Notice, dear congregation, the great folly of this dispute. It's foolish. It demonstrates demonstrates a gross failure to understand the true nature of Christ's kingdom and how it should be built. Not through worldly pomp and glory, but in what the world considers weakness and folly. In 1 Corinthians one twenty-five, the Apostle Paul says, Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. Will people come to me? Will people come to me? Will people hear my words and obey my decrees and my judgments? Will they consider me great? Dear congregation, that kind of reasoning does not reflect the concerns of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. It simply doesn't. Mm. Jesus was teaching them of his coming ignominious death, that is his disgraceful death and glorious resurrection. And all they could think about the whole time was about who would be the most popular, the most powerful when the kingdom should come. Now, we can scoff. I think it's ridiculous, and it is. But let us not think, dear congregation, that such folly is limited to the 12 disciples or their time. Let us not think to ourselves, ah, we know far better now. We have the whole New Testament. 
We live after the death and resurrection of Christ. We can see that Christ didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly one, a spiritual kingdom in the hearts of men and women. How foolish these men were. Let's not think that way. Because we see something here. That the disciples were wise enough at the hearing of this question being posed to them to see their foolishness and hold their peace. Keep their mouth shut. Would, would, would that we would hold our tongues as well, dear congregation. Especially in a time when Christian celebrity rules the day. When many Christians consider those with the most prestigious chairs and seminaries, the most popular books, most frequent speaking engagements, most views on YouTube, to be an indication of Christian greatness. In a day when many church members consider the words of some popular, albeit solid, reformed teacher online to be of more value and authority than the words of their pastor, who labors day in and day out for their souls in prayers, in tears, in teachings, in counsels and pleadings. Can we honestly, in light of that, look at these poor disciples here and scoff? We shouldn't. We live in a celebrity age. And the Reformed Christian Church is a celebrity church. Should we not rather fear and turn to self-examination than guffaw and mock the disciples? Do not Christians vie for power in their local churches every day, dear congregation, attempting with their wallets and their mouths to have the ear of their pastor? Now, thankfully, this doesn't happen here. I praise the Lord for it. So I'm not speaking to you. I'm just pointing out in our age we see this. Every day, vying within the churches even for authority and power. Are there not scads of rogue, renegade, self-appointed teachers frantically posting blogs and articles and YouTube videos and comments on different forums, on social media, trying to gather the largest followings to themselves without themselves submitting to Christ under biblical elders in their church? What else is this than foolish Disputing among Christ's disciples over who is greatest. I can't see it as anything else. But here, Jesus offers the corrective as he always does. Greatness in the kingdom does not consist in popularity, in power, or influence, but in what? Self-denial, humility, and service. Verse 35, and he sat down, which was a sign that he was now authoritatively teaching them. And he called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and a servant of all. Their idea of what it means to be great must be changed. In fact, radically reversed. True greatness does not exist in that from a towering height of attainment, and self-exaltation. A person has the right to look down at all others in some self-congratulatory manner. But rather, it consists in that a person, out of love for God, for what he has done for him, for him immerses himself in the needs of others, sympathizes with them in their needs, and helps them in every way possible. That's what greatness, humility, discipleship looks like. In this, out of love, to God, they love their neighbor. 
Out of love to God, they love their neighbor. The man who loves God most loves his neighbor most. And in this, he is great. This is humility, according to Jesus. This is greatness, according to Jesus. The dispute, however, was not only foolish, but wicked. For it was rooted in pride. It was rooted in pride. Pride is a great sin. Pride is the fountain and the shield of all sins. The proud man shall never receive grace from God. God resisteth the proud, says the Apostle James, but giveth grace to the humble. Pride gathers and collects all other sins, if you will. Pride culminates in death and ruin, as we read in Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Some biblical examples. Remember proud Nebuchadnezzar? After gloating about the vast kingdom that he supposed himself to have established by his own might and by his own power for his own honor, found himself wet with the dew of heaven, grazing in the fields as a beast of the earth. King Herod, after so proudly accepting the praises that were due to God alone as the Jews cried out, a voice, the voice of a God and not a man. After this, accepting of God's praises, he was eaten of worms where he sat. But the humble centurion, dear congregation, who thought himself unworthy for Jesus to even come into his home, received his servant healthy and whole. It was the humble tax collector rather than the proud Pharisee who left the temple justified. The proud man, dear congregation, the proud man shall fall because he stands on his own feet of his own power. But the humble man shall never fall because he's already bowed before God. He cannot fall. Humility, John Flavel the Puritan said, conceals all of our graces. It turns the eyes of ourselves and those around us from us to God. But pride sullies as destroys, corrupts even the best of deeds. The long robe of pride, as it were, dear congregation, gathers the most dirt as it trails behind the person. Women, some of you who are married know this, are often told, and I think wrongly, that they are never as beautiful as when they appear on their wedding day. It's the most beautiful they'll ever look. And their long, stunning white dresses. But dear congregation, if a woman were to then wear that wedding dress every single day, everywhere she went, her entire life, hoping in pride and vanity to always look her most beautiful, it wouldn't take very long, would it? For that beautiful, brilliant white dress to become filthy and spotted. Mm. Tattered. So too with pride. Upon the backdrop of pride, every spot of sin is accentuated. But humility receives the veil of grace, one Puritan said. That veils us entirely. Pointing only to Christ. Dear congregation, let us see the tenderness the long-suffering and mercy of Jesus here in teaching his disciples. He doesn't even rebuke them for such foolish, wicked, and proud thoughts. Rather, he allows the stark contrast of his teaching with their thinking to serve as the rebuke, doesn't he? He doesn't have to rebuke them. 
The greatness of Christ's disciples appears in what? Their conformity to Jesus Christ, their Lord. The first, that is the most prominent, the disciple who most exemplifies and glorifies his Lord, is the one who, like him, makes himself last of all, or least of all, servant of all. Christ came not to proclaim his righteous judgment over sinners and then cast them into hell. That's not why he came. Though he had every right to do so, and he would have remained loving and merciful had he done so. Rather, Christ came to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom. To be made sin on behalf of his people. To live and die in their place. And to rise from the grave for them. That they might rise with him in glory. That's humility. That's greatness. Dear Christians, do we have Christ's view of greatness in discipleship? Do we consider it great to bow lowest before him? Or do we seek to exalt ourselves? What are those areas? We must seek them out. What are those areas that we would rather see God diminished a little bit, that we would never verbalize that, and ourselves glorified? Do we, like Paul, see our lives as a drink offering to be poured out in service to God for the good and salvation of others? Things we must consider. Lastly, third, the greatness of humility, verses 36 through 37. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, receiveth me. And whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. Jesus, as he so often does, drives the point home in an unforgettable and delightful way. Bringing in a child, possibly Andrews or one of the other disciples, again, that debate's not of much value, though commentators dispute it. He brings in one of these children, stands them before everyone that's in the house, and he wraps his arms around them, and wraps his arms around the child, and says, Who shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me? And whosoever shall receive me receiveth not me, but him that sent me. The greatness of humility, dear congregation, which is the foundation and substance of true discipleship, is impressed upon us by the action of Jesus here in our passage. It's delightful as you read the Gospels to see how often Jesus and his ministry interacts with children. Interacts with children. Children, though born sinners, are the most innocent among men, aren't they? They're also the most weak, the most untaught, the most unlearned, the most in need of aid and help. Jesus healed many children in his ministry. And children, wherever he was, were drawn to him. And Jesus welcomed them. Jesus loves children. Jesus loves children. And let us remember, dear congregation, especially as many of us begin to have some more kids in the future, and it's never too early to tell our children that they too may come to Jesus, no matter how little their understanding, how lowly their state is by birth, they may come to Jesus in faith and be embraced in his loving arms. And dear believers, we were all too once children, weren't we? And by Christ, we are born again and made the children of God. 
Here we have an example, a vivid picture of true humility. A child both receiving and being received by Jesus. This is what greatness looks like. This is humility. And this is what he's trying to drive home to his disciples. Because again, they think it's about rank, order, power, prestige. That Christ, the, who is God manifest in the flesh, the king of glory, the creator and sustainer of all things, would take the time to interact with the children of sinful men is striking indeed, isn't it? Christ came for the least among us, the least among men. A child. The reason he puts a child is for a number of reasons. One that we should focus on is that a child represents all that is weak and small and beggarly and needy in man. But Christ, our dear, tender Lord Jesus, came for the weak, the beggarly, the small, the needy, the ignorant. The greatness of discipleship looks like the greatness of humility, which is a reflection of the greatness of Christ. Whosoever would be great shall likewise receive of such children in Christ's name. And whosoever, like this child, shall receive Christ, receiveth God. We can understand it that way. Now, do we care, dear congregation, as Christians, for the least of these? Do we give ourselves for the lost sinners around us? Do we consider greatness to be a prestigious role in the church or the seminary? A large platform, perhaps? A packed conference? Or do we consider greatness to be, out of a childlike reception of Jesus Christ, to kneel with the elderly and forgotten in prayer? To preach the gospel to the outcast and to the oppressed? To minister to the people around us that are considered, so often, too far gone to become Christians? The humble Christian, dear congregation, like this child, the humble Christian, like this child, comes to Jesus when Jesus calls him. And is taken up in his arms. And no one shall pluck him from Christ's hands. The humble Christian, out of love to God, brings the gospel and service to the lost, to the forgotten, to the weak, to the beggarly. The true disciple imitates his Lord, who came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In a word, humility, dear congregation, is rooted in gratitude. And gratitude flows out of grace received. Humility is rooted in gratitude, and gratitude flows out of grace received. We even see this when we look at the language itself. Like in most Indo-European languages, including Greek, we can see the relatedness of the English words grace and gratitude. They share the same root, grace, gratitude. So too in the Christian life, from the root of grace in the heart of a Christian stems the fruits of gratitude, as the Heidelberg Catechism so beautifully teaches us. The Christian life consists in first knowledge of our guilt and our sin, God's grace in Christ, and this all results in our loving and living unto God out of humble gratitude. Dear congregation, if we wish to do great things for Christ, we must take a great bow at his feet in humility. Let us cast off pride and embrace the greatness of Christian humility. Amen. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before thee once again. We approach unto thee through our Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask, God, that would give us true humility. We would look to thee, Lord Jesus, as an example of who we are to imitate and not putting our for- ourselves forward, but putting thee forward. Of having a desire to see thee glorified in our serving of others, our laboring for the good of individuals around us, of our city, of our nation, of the world. God, teach us to be humble. Help us to see thy grace as a great motivator to be humble, to rely upon thee. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.